Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for drawing us together today, and I pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as we continue in our series on glimpses of God's grace in the Old Testament, we'll be looking at the life of Joshua. Many of us are familiar with Joshua as the one who bravely fought Israel's enemies and led them into the promised land. But Joshua didn't become that great champion overnight. He went through some preparation in his life. Joshua first enters the pages of Scripture in Exodus 17. Israel had just crossed the Red Sea a few weeks before, not as an organized army, but as a band of former slaves, newly released from 400 years of servitude in Egypt. They were hardly prepared to face an enemy straight away, and though there were plenty of other older, more experienced men to choose from, Moses turned to Joshua to lead this first encounter with the inhabitants of the land, a battle against the cruel nomadic tribe of Amalek at a place in the wilderness called Rephidim. Verse 8 says the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Most commentators believe Joshua was around 20 years of age at this time, and though young, he would have already seen much of God's power and Moses' leadership at work. He would have been born a slave in Egypt, but he would have experienced that first Passover and crossed the Red Sea as they followed the pillar of fire and cloud. He would have witnessed Moses strike the rock and would have drunk the water that miraculously sprang from it. He would have seen manna fall from the sky and eaten his fill along with all the rest of Israel. And so Joshua already knew from personal experience that the God they were following was the mighty God who saves and that Moses was his chosen leader. So when Moses called him to lead the battle, Joshua did not hesitate or question. He responded in faith and obedience based on what he already knew of God's power and faithfulness. Nothing gives us the impression, though, that the men of Israel had any fighting ability at this time. But as Joshua stepped out in faith, he received a glimpse of God's grace that would mark a turning point in his life, preparing him for the future. 
The amazing victory at Rephidim taught Joshua that it is the Lord who saves and that he will be with us in the battles of life. But it also taught him how those battles were won. Moses stood on top of the hill and raised his staff while the battle was raging. This was the staff that had parted the Red Sea and brought water from the rock in the desert. Moses was calling down the power and presence of God on Joshua as he battled. What encouragement Joshua must have received looking up and seeing Moses praying for him, reminding him where the victory would come from. I want you to notice as well, though, that Moses didn't stand there alone. He needed the support of others to accomplish his part in what had to be done. As fatigue slowly crept through Moses' arms, Aaron and Hur partnered with him to steady his hands. And I think that there's an important takeaway in that for us as well. Because God has graciously placed us in community with others to help in our times of need. No one in his kingdom should think of themselves as a lone ranger. For just as Joshua needed Moses, so too Moses needed Aaron and Hur. In the New Testament, Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 12 that as the children of God, we are like the members of Christ's body on earth. We are one body united in him, but just like our biological bodies, the body of Christ has many individual parts. Each of us is unique and necessary, and we all have an important part to play as we work together to see God's purposes accomplished. That day at Rephidim, Joshua learned that God would never leave him nor forsake him and that he was able to do all things through the one who gave him strength. He learned how prayer changes things, making the impossible suddenly possible. And he learned the value of each one playing their part. And though Joshua didn't realize it yet, God was going to use this event to equip him for the future that he had planned. Immediately after their victory at Rephidim, God made a promise in Exodus 17 verse 14. He wanted Joshua particularly to hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. A banner is something that identifies and unifies a particular group of people. And Israelites saying, The Lord is my banner, was a way of identifying themselves as the followers of the living God who had promised to utterly defeat their enemies. The same is true for us today. The Lord is our banner in that he is the one who unites us. He is our savior. We're rescued and set apart because of our faith in him. But what was it that God wanted Joshua to be sure to hear? It was that he would completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. This promise about the annihilation of the Amalekites prepared Joshua 
Joshua for what lay ahead. Sometime later, Numbers 13 reveals that when God brought his people to the very edge of the promised land and they were poised to enter, he instructed that one man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel be sent ahead to spy out the situation and report back to Moses on what the land was like and whether the different tribes who lived there were strong or weak, few or many. After 40 days, the spies returned with two conflicting reports. They brought with them huge clusters of grapes as well as pomegranates and figs as proof of the land's goodness, declaring that it was indeed a place of abundance that, in their words, flowed with milk and honey. And yet, Ten of the spies were hesitant about Israel's ability to conquer the people living there, saying that they felt like grasshoppers when compared to them, because apparently there were some actual physical giants in the land. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, disagreed with that assessment. They believed that God would help them, no matter who their adversaries were. Why do you think Joshua in particular would feel so confident about their chances against the people who lived in the land that God had promised them? Well, scripture reveals that one of the groups living there was in fact the Amalekites, whom God had already promised to completely wipe out. Remember that God specifically wanted Joshua to know that he was going to remove the Amalekites from the equation and not allow them to hinder his people any longer. Joshua remembered both God's promise and his past faithfulness and applied it to the situation they were now in. If God could defeat the Amalekites, he could surely defeat all of the other ites in the land as well, even the giants that so terrified the other spies. It was faith in the promise of God and the sure knowledge of his faithfulness in the past that fueled Joshua and Caleb's obedience. They weren't just being positive. They weren't just being brave. They were acting in utter faith that God would do exactly as he said. He would bring his people into the land. So Joshua encouraged them to take possession of the land, believing that in God's strength they could certainly do it. Unfortunately, the rest of Israel were unwilling to trust the Lord. They were reluctant to follow God into the land he'd sworn to give them. And so they were sent to wander in the wilderness for 40 long years, one year for each day that they'd spent spying out the land. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, that entire generation of men who had come out of Egypt died in the wilderness they were not allowed to enter into God's promised land because of their unbelief. This story so touches my heart because I realize that as I face my own problems today, my own giants in the land, I've got to ask myself whether I'm viewing my problems through eyes of fear or eyes of faith. 
Am I looking to God and his faithfulness or to my own abilities? Am I trying to do things on my own or do I call on my brothers and sisters in Christ's family to pray for me and receive their help and encouragement? The truth is we do not face our struggles alone. Even in the midst of life's fiercest battles, God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us as we trust in him. After the 40 years of wandering, Moses himself died. Israel was once again poised to enter the promised land, but this time without their deliverer and leader. We often forget how large Moses loomed in the life of Israel. He was the only leader most of them had ever known. He was the voice of God in their midst, the one who had taught them everything they knew about the Lord. And now, when they most needed him, he was gone. God appeared to Joshua and appointed him as leader of his people to take them into the promised land he'd sworn to give them. He understood that Joshua must have been reeling with sorrow and fear, and so he gave him a series of solemn promises and instructions in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and verse 8. He said, Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What promises, what strength Joshua must have found in them to go forward in obedience. It wasn't long before Joshua found himself in a situation that would certainly prove the truth of God's promises. In Joshua 3, Israel once again was on the border with the promised land. They were camped just east of the Jordan River, directly across from the walled city of Jericho. They were exactly where God had led them. They believed God's promise to be with them, as he had been with Moses, and to take them into the land. But they hadn't necessarily anticipated facing a river swollen to twice its normal width or a walled fortress on the horizon. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 3, verse 2, where we find Joshua's instructions to the people. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Faced with an unexpected challenge, they didn't look for an alternative plan or move from where God had placed them. They simply waited. They were waiting for the Ark of the Covenant to lead them. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the presence of God. The Ark was always kept in the midst of the congregation, either in the Holy of Holies when Israel was encamped or in the center of the marching arrangement 
when Israel was on the move. But here, God revealed that the ark was to go in front of the congregation, showing the Israelites where to go. He knew that they hadn't experienced anything like this before, and he wanted them to have a clear sign that he was with them, leading them and keeping them safe. God's care for us is so particular and so tender. At all times, he knows exactly where we are, what we're facing, and he also knows exactly what we need. But I think we must be careful not to rush ahead of him, as I think we sometimes do, asking him to bless what we've already decided to do without ever waiting for his direction before we begin. We sometimes want him to follow us rather than the other way around, and then we wonder why things often do not turn out as we'd hoped. But if we wait for him, He'll go before us to show the way, and as we obey his word to us, he will remain with us even in a flood of many waters. Look at Joshua 3 verses 14 to 17. What happened when the priest's feet got wet and the ark entered the river? So, When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that's the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. What an incredible glimpse of God's grace. Just as he had been with Joshua in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds at Rephidim, The Lord was with them now as they faced the impossible challenge of crossing a swollen river. As the priests stepped into the rushing water, it began to slow, and as the ark stopped in the middle of the Jordan, the people completed the crossing on dry ground. How wonderful, how miraculous, and yet the real glimpse of God's grace was that ark standing firm on dry ground in the middle of the river, because it proved that God was right there in the midst of their trial with them, ensuring their ultimate safety. And just as he met them in the middle of their difficulties, he will also meet us in the midst of ours to bring us to safety. I marvel at the fact that the priests had to step out into the swiftly moving water before the river began to subside. That was a very different scenario to how God's people had crossed the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses. Then the sea had dried up before they ever took a step. But that was not the case this time. And I think that goes to remind us of the vital role faith will play as we follow God. He may not lead us in just the same way he has led someone else, or even in the same way that he has led us previously. 
Each person's walk with God may look different from ours, and each season of our own lives presents different challenges, and yet we can trust the Lord in all of them. Joshua 4 verse 1 reveals that this encounter with God at the Jordan River was something he meant for them to remember always. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Isn't it amazing that these stones, the building blocks of their testimony, if you will, came from the middle of the river? Israel needed these stones. They would help them to keep the story of God's deliverance alive for their children and their children's children. Unfortunately, the people of Israel had exhibited very short memories up to this point. They often forgot all that the Lord had done for them in the past, and they repeatedly struggled with unbelief. They needed help remembering. Are we really any different? I don't believe we are. When we feel his presence and his power in the midst of trials, we must pay careful attention, for these are our memorial stones, the markers in our lives that demonstrate his mercy, his grace and his love for us, and they will be immensely useful to us in the future. There are many incidents in the Bible in which individuals are called to look back on their own memorial stones of God's faithfulness in the past in order to give them courage and hope for the future. The Psalms are full of such encouragements. As I've faced my own difficulties in life, I want you to know I found that practice of remembering to be most helpful to me too. There have been many times that God has taken me by a route I would never have chosen for myself. Some of the incidents that spring to my mind would be the terrible pregnancy I had with my first child. It seemed certain that we would lose him, but God graciously protected both his life and mine in the end. And though I was advised not to have any more children, God in his kindness gave me a daughter as well. Our family moved across the world from Africa to the United States, a land we did not know, and yet God miraculously provided for every step of that journey. Years later, I had another near-death experience. I was critically ill, and when I was admitted into hospital, the doctor, with two nurses as witnesses, took down my end-of-life decisions because they did not believe I was going to make it. But God reminded me of his faithfulness 
to me in the past, and he encouraged me from the words of Psalm 139, that despite the doctor's assessment, all of my days were written in God's book before one of them came to be, and that I would live just as long as he had always planned. The fact that I'm here today is yet another memorial stone of testimony in my pile. All of these testimonies of God's grace in the past really helped me a few years ago when my husband died and I found myself alone after 35 years of marriage. For though there have been many times that God has taken me by a route that I would not have chosen for myself, I can honestly tell you that God has met me and walked alongside me through each trial. And yes, he is faithful in all things. And I know that he'll graciously meet you too, as you remain obedient to his word and as you trust in him. There was another reason, though, given for these memorial stones in Joshua 4. They served as a public witness to the nations that God is the mighty God who saves. When we share our testimony with someone, we're doing just that. We're declaring the Lord to those around us. But if we're honest, most of us, I think, struggle with what to say and how to say it, don't we? Well, don't make it more difficult than it really is. You don't have to tell your whole story at once. Little by little, in the normal course of your relationships and activities, ask God to give you opportunities to just mention him and his grace, humbly and lovingly, because we never know what's in someone else's heart. Let him open the doors, and when you do that, you will find the words will come, and they will accomplish his purpose. What did Joshua glimpse of God's grace and what can we see in his life about the God we too want to follow? Well, we see that our God is a God who keeps his promises in the face of battles, loss and unexpected challenges. He strengthens and guides us through his word. He remains faithful from generation to generation and he never leaves us or forsakes us. Never. What grace! <laughs> May we glimpse it for ourselves and give our lives completely to the one who loves us far more than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Joshua who heard your promise and remembered how you had been faithful in the past and he was willing to stand and walk by faith into his future knowing that you would be with him. Lord, help us to be like him and uh, bring glory to your name no matter where we go. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at In the Word.